You sound better. I, I feel like I'm eight. I'm at 85%, so it's not 100, but... It's pretty good. Once, I you don't... Get over, once you get over 50, it's 60 at the best. So how are you doing? How was your day today? Um, it was, you know, a nine-hour workday. How was your day? Mine was long. It started out pretty pretty dry, but it loosened up as the day went on. That's usually... <laughs> nope. What? <laughs> You. <laughs> oh, today's been a pretty uh was pretty rough in the beginning, but kind of started evening out after two. I got a little more tolerable, and uh, so tomorrow night got the live video thing happening at the carousel. So I'm kind of excited about that. So that'll either be a really good thing or a bad be- thing. It's gonna be great. Yeah, but I haven't. I'll either find out I practiced enough on these new songs, or I have not. Because I'm doing two new originals, and then I'm doing one cover just because it's fun to do covers. What cover are you going to do? Or are you, are you not allowed to? Well, this will be out afterwards. So what cover did you do? It uh, It's called You Look Good in My Shirt. Okay. It's by, um, it was originally by Keith Urban. Yeah. So, and then this evening, well, the other thing was Rick sent me a song. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of sarcastic so so it's up your alley so naturally i was like let me help write this with you let me help you finish this and he said okay so while on a break at work i was like typing down his lyrics and then correcting them and moving stuff around in my head and trying to get all the lyrics together and stuff because i couldn't play while i was at work it'd be too much are you going to go live when you do it on Facebook and stuff? No, no. I actually have Guy. Uh-huh. He has a name. It's uh, Alex. He does? Yeah. <laughs> he has a name. That name. Sometimes I call him by it. Sometimes I call him by others. He's going to be doing the video for me. He does a really good job. He's helped me on all my other live videos. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he wasn't able to help with the audio because that's kind of my fault. But he did really good. He made me look pretty with no makeup so that's always nice then the the capper tonight was my daughter likes to she was in ballet before we moved here and so periodically she dresses up in her ballet-ish outfits yes yes and and today it was the frozen elsa's outfit with the long trail and so Uh she was doing ballet and i turned on mozart's fifth Yes. Da, dum, da, dum, dum, dum. Dum. <laughs> yes. And I started laughing and then I told my wife about it. And then so basically what we do is we just let the, the thing play mm-hmm. and uh and she dances. Let her burn it, burn that energy. Yeah. And so she was dancing and then uh Shine Down came on, uh-huh. Monster. She's like, I don't I I want classical. And I was okay. like she goes she goes, I want classical. You can't dance to this. And I'm like, you can ballet to this. And so I started, my monsters are real, doing all these weird dances <laughs> and stuff. She laughed more than she agreed with me. I, I, did, not, I did not sell that. I mean, I, I probably looked very graceful, but outside of that, you know. It was a good dad moment. She'll never forget it. There are going to be too many memories she's going to be unable to forget related to me. <laughs> <laughs> I always tell my daughter, I'm like, it's okay. I'll pay for therapy. How's your wife feeling? She is feeling better as far as the cold, but yeah. she's still pregnant. So she's just 
and yeah, she's at the end of pregnancy. She she's like she's probably debating on cutting herself open and taking the baby out <laughs> at this point. She's like, Eugenia. I just need to I need to find my feet again. I yeah, she's kind of miserable. She's uh, she's not sleeping and stuff. You know how it is. I know how it is, and I I used to get mad because people were like being pregnant so magical it's such a great thing you're so beautiful and you're like i'm fat i think my i'm pretty sure my shoes don't match and then they're like you're glowing you're like no that's acne that's oily skin there's nothing fun about this you know i'm really stressed out about this pregnancy because i put on so much weight there's no way i'm gonna be able to lose it all if she walked behind you right now and stabbed you in the neck with a fork i wouldn't even report it because anytime she hears you say that she has I am not condoning domestic violence, but she has the right to just one whack. I, you know, if she's going to do it, I don't want to survive it. That's all <laughs> I have to say. Make it a good one. Are you ready for this interview? I am ready. Damn it. It's taking too long. I want my gratification. I want my James. I want him now. Oh, God. I hope he heard that. Oh, I just heard that. <laughs> hey, James. What's going on, dude? Hey, how's it going? It's good. James is in in the Pacific Northwest, aren't you? Yeah. What's it like? What's it like? I miss it. Talk to me. I think it's cold. Um, I work from home, so there are days I don't even go outside. It's pretty sad, honestly. (laughs) But um, no, it's been pretty cold. It's probably been between 40 and 50 degrees lately. Oh, that's perfect. That's shorts weather, man. So, James, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know I'm just like, I'm trying to segue. That's <laughs> really, I'm, I'm still learning. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how uh, your band came to be. Uh, sure. Uh, well, my band, uh, Masonic Block, has produced more than 10 albums of music. And uh, I haven't done a lot of, even pre-pandemic, uh, performing and touring got put put on the back burner. But prior to that, I I toured the U.S. a number of times. And I was influenced by everything from old school Metallica to the Beatles to Simon and Garfunkel to the Melvins, any rock genre you can think of, you know, Motown, early 60s pop music, um, Prince, you know, just uh, kind of across the board. And so the band's music ends up being a real eclectic mess of uh, kind of acoustic pop or hard rock or punk, sometimes even electronica or experimental ambient. I mean, I like Skinny Puppy, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that there's an industrial influence. There's a folk influence. You um, do a good job. You have over 10 albums, which is fucking crazy. To me. I know it's unbelievable. And then but, he was, and it's like, how do I pick just three songs out of this? For this but, podcast? But, but the other thing that's cool is you, I think I was going through, I pretty much went through everything on your website mm-hmm. and you do a good job of grouping them. So it's, it's not like you have death metal and then your Bonnie Raitt cover on the same album. You do a good <laughs> job of mixing the thing that I, I thought was strange. So you have 10 albums, which is a lot of fucking songs. And so I was going through them all and I was going, cool, cool, cool. Listen to it. And then I got to broken open fucking 30 minutes, dude. What the hell? <laughs> I was like, yeah. And they're like marching drums in there and a, yeah. a whole bunch of different. Influences. It's really good. I was like, Oh my God. 
It's my really daughter good. was like, Dad, when is this song going to end? <laughs> Be quiet. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of that industrial influence. You know, when I say industrial, I don't just mean the sort of industrial metal that some people think of, uh, but also like uh, the abstract throbbing gristle stuff. If people are familiar with that, or uh, like I said, Skinny Puppy, Nurse with Wound. I mean, even you know, The Beatles, Revolution Number no. Nine. That you know, that was kind of the first industrial song by a popular band, and you know, in, it's industrial because it's not a verse, chorus, verse. It doesn't follow. Uh, your standard song structure. It's just a collage of sounds and noise and samples. And I was using that sort of influence for Broken Open, uh, like, you know, throw everything, including the kitchen sink, and then about five more kitchen sinks uh, into the mix. And, you know, how, how can we how can we do that? And yet I still try to follow, there's a change of moods throughout that 36 minutes at the same time. It's not one sound at the beginning that's the same at the end. And I, I, I try to do that in the same way that, you know, Revolution 9 has a, you know, number nine, number nine at the beginning, but then at the end, it's a soccer team in England yelling block that kick. You know, it's 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 a real change in moods and shifting of, of sound. And to me, all music does that. All the music I like does that. Now, whether, you know, it's Zeppelin and it's within a single song or it's in the collection of songs, that variety of sounds is really important to me. So, James... You do guitar, keys, bass, drums, and mm-hmm. you do the vocals too. That's right. You're a fucking show off, dude. <laughs> uh, well, the, the key, the keys is fake. I don't really know how to play keys at all. I, I've done it, but I fake my way through it. I just find a melody that I like on the keys, and usually it's. Uh, on a synthesizer so I can use like synth strings or something like that. And mm-hmm. I use that to, to augment sound sometimes, not very often, but um, I've done it a handful of times. So that I'm totally faking my way through it, but everything else I, I can comfortably say that I play. I started out as a drummer. I was a uh, frustrated. I started writing songs when I was 10 years old, which I can safely tell you was not yesterday. Uh, <laughs> I was 10 years old. Oh, very long so time young. Ago. Yeah. You look like you were just born a few days ago. Yeah, I'm like 12. Yeah. (laughs) Me too. uh, But yeah, so I started writing songs when I was 10, and that's when I was uh, playing drums. And in my very young years as a kid, I was a drummer who was also a frustrated songwriter. And I was writing all these songs in my head, but I didn't know how to play them. So I'd form these bands, and nobody would be writing anything. And I I would have all these songs in my head, but I didn't know how to actually play them or show them. So I became a singer and a guitar player and a bass player just so I could show people my songs. Like to me, they already existed because they were, you know, in my, you know, in my brain basket, but um, I couldn't share them with anybody. And so I would have been perfectly happy to have been a drummer if I had had a way to share my songs with other people who could play them probably better. But I, I played guitar and, and sang in order to be able to get those songs out into the world. So then Mason, Masonic Block is just you or you have other people that you're playing with now? Um, I always have other people I'm playing with, but it's a sort of revolving door of other musicians. I've always written most, if not all of them, too. I was going to say, is the re- revolving door because of your diverse styles? So, for example, when I write a song, I find the best player for that song, or if I'm going to do a CD release party, which we people don't do anymore, 
and I'm going to do it on a specific CD. That CD is going to have a theme, and then I have to find the musicians to play that stuff. Is that yes. I, I really appreciate that question because I've never been asked that, and that definitely is part of it. Some of it is just I'm picky about who I play with, and so I will play with the same people off and on over a number of years rather than playing with the same two or three or four people for years on end. That's part of it, but it's also what you're talking about, which is there are drummers I know who are better at playing rock. There are some that are better at playing metal. You know, there are some who are better at playing like really basic stuff, but there's something really great about their feel that I like playing with. So maybe for something more laid back. Um, And same goes with different guitar players uh, and bass players and whatnot. So yeah, that definitely plays a part. One of the few performances we've done recently Uh, We did this last summer and I did exactly that for that show where we broke it up into a couple of different sets where I played with a couple of different musicians at different parts of the set in order to play all the different kinds of music I want to play. That's awesome. So basically your band is composed of, they kind of have to have three things. They have to be able to play the music. They have to kind of have the, not, not only be able to play, but have the skill set within the genre that you're performing. And then there's a personality factor too. So if they're dickheads, you probably don't want to play with them, correct? That's right. And maybe to my own detriment, because because I can do most of it myself, at least on record, um, I have a real sort of low tolerance for bullshit. So I wanted to ask you about the name. So are you Freemasons by birth, interest, or occupation? Oh, definitely interest. So another passion of mine is history. And uh, I'm not really into like the conspiracy theory kind of element of uh, masonry. I, what really captured me about it is the aesthetics. It's just visually they're, um, they're really bizarre. And I, I like how there's a weird aesthetic of this sort of poetic and beautiful artistic level to the Freemasonry legend, uh, and then how it's steeped in mathematics and geometry, which makes it kind of bizarre and interesting. And then because I'm also an historian, the fact that there's this really weird relationship between the Freemasons and the American Revolution uh, is fascinating to me, where like you can go to the the Masonic Center in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. It's this enormous Freemasonry hall, and there's this mural that is a representation of something that really happened, which was when the congressional building in Washington, D.C. was built, the cornerstone was set during a Masonic ritual where the founders who were Freemasons, most notably George Washington, were actually part of this Freemasonry ceremony um, where they set the cornerstone for the nation's capital. And I, I just find that very interesting because at the same time that the United States I know I'm getting really nerdy here, but at the same time that the United States uh, established the first sort of secular nation in history, they did it in this way where they're doing all this very cult-like stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so the, there's this weird cult influence that I'm just kind of uh, interested in, but it's all on a lark. It doesn't mean anything. I'm not a Freemason, and uh, it, it's not anything more than I like the sound and it's just kind of a nod to that kind of stuff. I agree so with let's you. talk about the first song. Let's talk about uh, the one of the, well, I, it's not the first song. It's just one I picked and uh, going home. Tell me about that song. Uh, sure. That's been 
one of the most popular songs that I've ever written. Uh, almost anywhere that it's been played or anywhere that I've performed it, it's just generally gotten a lot of positive feedback. I'm really proud of it. Uh, I have for a long time said that it's much harder to write a really, really good two-minute song than a really, really good 10-minute song. And if you've gone through my catalog, you know, I've written 10-minute songs. So yeah. I'm, not, I'm not an enemy of that sort of thing. But I do think that maybe the most perfect song ever written is In My Life by the Beatles. And it's two and a half minutes. And it's so absolutely perfect. Every note that's there is perfectly placed. The melody is incredible. The lyrics are nostalgic without being saccharine. And there's just enough of a dynamic there between the harpsichord-like uh, piano interlude and the way Ringo plays the drums. And it's, it's just this perfectly set two and a half minutes. And I love things like Metallica's To Live Is To Die is one of my favorite sort of epics. And there's a lot of Faith No More stuff that, that runs long mm. that I really, really like. So I like stuff that has a lot of orchestration and that, that changes a lot and shifts and all of these arrangements. I'm a big fan of that kind of stuff. But I'm super impressed by songs that are two minutes and you'll you never forget it. Those two yeah. minutes change your life. And and that going was home first... to me is sort of the best version of that, that I've been able to do. Yeah, the Thank first you. thing I noticed was it was two minutes and nine seconds. And I was like, wow, because I listened to some other stuff before I jumped into that. So I was expecting like fast metal and it started off and I was like, why is my face not melted? <laughs> and I was like, but it's really nice and relaxing. And it, to me, I didn't pull out my guitar and try to play with it, but it sounded like the whole song was almost the whole song was an entire chorus. That, how did that come out? Can you talk a little bit about the creative process on that song? Yeah, sometimes I approach a song like that. Like I'm, I'm working on a song right now where I'm a little bit more, I look at it like an architect and like, this is how I'm going to put it together. But that's one of those songs where it just all came out. I basically wrote it in one go. Like when I played it the first time, I, that was basically the song. I, but I have like four or five, six minute songs that are the same way. So it's not just because of its simplicity. It's that um, I knew very quickly that that guitar line, in terms of the guitar, nothing else needed to be there. Not just, I didn't need more guitar parts. But I didn't need to change from that progression. I, I saw the value in that part just being repeated. And then the changes coming in dynamically between where there's vocals and where there's not, where there's bass and drums, where there's not, where there's backing vocals and where there's not. There was enough elements I could use as the dynamic sort of variety in that. But that's one of those songs. I know it's a cliche, but I do think it's true. Oftentimes the best songs come quick. And that was one of those. It was in a time when I was writing songs and this, I'm lucky enough that this ha has happened maybe three or four times in my life where I I'm just writing song after song after song. They're just kind of coming really quick. And that was one of them. So I didn't even put any thought into it.
Let's talk about some more of your songwriting process because we dipped into that just a little bit with that song. Is it the same for you every time or because it kind of it kind of sounds like sometimes they just come to you and sometimes you really like sit down and almost like lay it out in front of you. You've got 10 albums of songs. That's that's (laughs) to me like when you emailed me, I can't I was just like, this guy is fucking crazy. Um. Is every song written differently for you? Or do you have like this bunch was kind of like this, this bunch was kind of like this. I'll start with the lyrics. I don't want this one to have lyrics. Like, how do you do that? Yeah, definitely genre wise, they're very different from each other. Mm-hmm. But I hadn't thought about it like this before, but um, the genre has nothing to do with how it's written. So for me, it's kind of two camps. There's the camp of songs that, that come almost all at once. Like, um, if you remember the movie Amadeus, where uh, Salieri talks about how Mozart seems to, and I, I, I'm not comparing myself to Mozart in any way, just I, I think this is uh, a good comparison, the way he words it, that um, it's almost not like he was composing, but like he was taking dictation. The songs were already in his head. Right. Um, I, have a, I have songs that are like that, where I'm just getting them out into the physical world, but they're already written. So you're kind of channeling it. Yeah. And then I have a, another batch, and they're probably about equal in terms of all the songs that I've written, probably about equal amount of each, where I very consciously constructed them, and they took work. And there's songs of all different genres in both of those piles. So when you say a song takes work, like you're carefully crafting it, it didn't just come to you. Tell mm-hmm. us what that process is like. like. What steps do you take? Well, speaking of my 10-minute songs... There's one called Human Placebo Embryo Toy. Yeah, that's a good one. one. And another one's called Tail Billing Michelle. And those two come to mind, not just because they tend to be two of the longest ones, but I wrote both of those on bass guitar. But the bass is almost the lead instrument through two thirds of both of those songs. So they're kind of similar in that both of those songs have sort of three distinct sections. They they again don't follow a verse, chorus, verse format. They, They more act like a trilogy between them because i wrote those on bass the bass has a sort of melodic component that the bass guitar often doesn't have in a song but those you know those took work and in both cases i realized okay more or less the the bass is the lead instrument on this album even if by the final section there's a literal lead guitar doing even more melody and stuff there's something that the bass is doing here that you don't often hear and so that was a conscious decision and then I allowed that to sort of lean me toward, okay, well, then what do I want this to be about in the literal sense in terms of the lyrics? You know, how heavy do I want it to get? How much do I want it to build? Do I want it to be like Stairway where it starts really quiet and ends really big or, or more like a sort of, you know, third or fourth album Metallica song where it gets really big and then quiet again and really big and yeah. then quiet again. So those were songs that I wrote where those conscious decisions were being made. I was going through your catalog and um, I've noticed that you had a, I think it's standing guard at uh, Ford Awesome mm-hmm. and you had Johnny Durango yeah. as the producer of that, but all the nine other albums were done by you. So why did you get Johnny Durango involved? Yeah. And he's still a really good friend of mine. He's still based in Seattle. Um, little plug for him. He still runs mob studios in Seattle and he's a, he's a fantastic musician in his own right. Um, at the time, I had done so many albums, either 
you know, sort of home recordings or going into a studio, but had done so much, including the producing myself. I really wanted a collaborator and I've collaborated on writing songs. There are a handful of songs I've co-written with people, but most of the time the collaboration has come in on a producer level. And he was really valuable to me because I'm a fan of Motown stuff, but he's like a super duper fan of Motown. And what was really great about the songs on there, at least half the songs, because half the songs were engineered by him and and then the other half were recorded and engineered by somebody else. But the songs that he had a hand in, there is a Motown feel in the production, even if you don't hear it in the genre of music, in that a lot of my songs have lots and lots of guitars. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. found that the songs that I brought to him only needed one guitar. We weren't going to do a thousand overdubs of guitars. He's like, just let it breathe. Let's treat it like a Motown track where there's one guitar player in the band and that's enough. And so you we're, were in school, basically. You're yeah, going, yeah. taking you to school. Yeah. And, and the things that I wanted to do happened uh, for that album happened to fit perfectly with his approach. And I didn't even know it at the time because that is also where um, I, there's a song uh, called uh, Kika that has violin and there's a song called Kaya that that has a saxophone. And I already had the plan of having those instruments on those songs. But if I had gone my usual direction and put like five guitar tracks down first, it would have really taken up too much of the space for a violin or, or a saxophone. So I was really fortunate that the songs I brought to him happened to be absolutely perfect for the sort of approach that he wanted to do. That's kind of cool because I'm a, I'm a big guitar guy too. Like all my music is going to have a badass guitarist playing on it. Now he may be playing something that like Andy Summers, you know, plays these pretty intricate things, you know, (laughs) but, but it doesn't sound intricate. It sounds like it's easy because he's pulling it off. And so my guitarists, all of them are badass. But I think that's funny that, because because I'm like, let's add another guitar. No, we need another guitar. And then my the guy that I work with, who helps me primarily with my vocals, goes, "All right, what are we trying to do with this song? This is right. what I hear. What do you hear?" And then I'll tell him, and he goes, "No, that's not what you hear. You hear this." And I was being educated every every time I'm with him. I'm learning. Oh, I just. I write more types of songs than what I actually know. Because mm-hmm. you get in those ruts when you're by yourself. Yep. It sounded like to me you pulled in Johnny Durango to get yourself a little extra insight into what you're doing and to take your that at least that music up to a different level. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. I wasn't in a rut in terms of writing, but I was in a rut in terms of, uh, you know, I didn't want to make another album exactly the same way. I'd had enough of that. I knew that he had, being in Seattle, you have all different kinds of bands coming through all the time. Oh. And he, he had a personal relationship from, uh, with both guys in Queensryche as well as guys in KMFDM. He works with artists across that spectrum. And I knew that he would have an approach that was much more disciplined than what I tended to have. And by having that sort of sounding board. But we we also, because he had such a sort of 60s pop and Motown approach, we would also be at Loggerhead sometimes. And I remember at one point uh, on the song, The Harem, where the guitars go from clean to overdrive. And he didn't want to turn them up when 
they go into the distortion. I'm like, you, you got to. This is a rock song. You, you got to drive it. You have to boost those guitars. And he resisted, but I won that one because I was like, just try it and listen. And then if I'm wrong, we can change it back. And then as soon as he listened to it the, my way, then he was all for it. But to his credit, he was the one who was right most of the time during those sessions. Well, I won't tell anyone, okay? Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's just on a podcast. It's fine. <laughs> Let's talk about Green and Greed, because that's more of kind of like a punk sounding. What, what was the thought behind, uh, behind that track? Were you angry? It sounded like you were angry. He, he wasn't happy, I can tell you that. I wanted to really, I wanted to write a really straightforward punk, both musically and lyrically. So like kind of like pro working class and then like stylistically genre wise, very straightforward punk sounding song. That's what you nailed it. It was another one of those that basically came out fully formed. It sounded all punk, but it sounded like it had elements of old accept and really old Judas Priest in it. Oh, was, wow. Yeah. And so, so I was listening to it and I didn't have time to like actually sit down and figure out, okay, this is an accept style and this is a priest style, mm-hmm. but, but I heard those influences in there. And the other thing is the drum part is just really cool on that song. Very cool. I don't, I don't know what it was about the drum part that I thought was really cool. The thing that disappointed me was there was no guitar solo. I was, I was, <laughs> This is like the second person he said that to in three interviews. He's like, where's my, where's my guitar solo? He's obsessed with guitar solos and hair. I, I can understand (laughs) that. Uh, I actually removed the guitar solo from that. Oh, so there was one. Uh There was one. And I actually thought that it worked better just as a vamp, just as a section where it just repeats because you're expecting the guitar solo. And I thought, what's more punk than not delivering? Well, yeah, yeah, fair. That's, that's the thing about <laughs> fair. punk. Yeah, you, you know, they do something unexpected or, you know, that's pretty much just balls to the wall in your face. My favorite lyric was, I know you think I'm nobody. You are no one without me. And ah, that is so, good. so true in life. Because so you may be rich and powerful, but you're standing on the working man's back. And without that working man, you will not be where you are. Absolutely. Because you certainly couldn't do the work of the working man. Yeah. And I I, I so appreciate that you picked up on that. And back to the solo thing, that's one of the reasons to uh, see us live if the opportunity ever arises, because we do sometimes throw solo in when we play that.
know in some of your other songs i don't see i don't know how you're going to feel about this but i i also picked up on some of the 90s stuff like the acoustic counting crows stuff Mm -hmm. specifically the counting crows um and it wasn't necessarily the chord progression it was more the sound of the acoustic guitar it's like you were going for a specific sound if that makes any sense um a tone you know even though the acoustic doesn't have the uh the tonality of the electric where you can really change it around pretty much the acoustic is kind of what you got. Right. But, but you did a good job of emulating that sound. Oh, or, that's, that's not a comparison I've ever heard. I appreciate that. But, um, but that was, that was good. But yeah, you were influenced by everyone. Cause I was going through it. All and I was over. Going, okay. I hear this, I hear this. And I was thinking, I was actually, th- I told her, I go, this kid is very diverse. And she goes, Oh, he's old like us. <laughs> you're not but, wrong. But but it's it's great to see that you're able to put all those genres together because that creates a really compelling work of art to listen to. At least for me, because I'm I can listen in every one of your songs. For me, if I listen to it, it's gonna pull trigger something different from yeah. my, my life. And it's it's like you're just like pulling from. The 70s, the 60s, the 80s, the 90s. You're definitely creating your own experience. Like you're creating a brand new experience for longtime music lovers because you come from all these different genres and you're not afraid to explore them and incorporate them. Was that a conscious decision? Uh, Not really. (laughs) It's a happy accident. (laughs) I I suppose. Uh, I write the music that I would want to hear. So I think that's why my influence is... Um, really come through and they tend to be diverse because that's how my influences are. It reminds me of a conversation I had with a musician friend of mine many years ago 
who wanted to start writing. He was a great musician, but he didn't write songs. Um, he didn't write music of his own. And he kept asking me, how do you do that? How? And <laughs> I, I, I told him, well, I don't know if I can tell you how to write a song, but you can't write a good song until you know what a good song is. Ooh, that's so good. think about what your favorite songs are and why they are your favorite songs. And you might, you might, it might start, start to come to you what is being effective in there that's touching you. So I, I, I do think about music in that way. You're from the Pacific Northwest, which has a very strong alt indie punk scene and has for a very, very long time. Did that influence you in any way? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. without a doubt. Yeah, but in a way, so I think that a lot of music lovers, not just musicians, but all sorts of people who love music who come out of the Pacific Northwest and especially the Seattle area mm-hmm. um, are a lot like me in the sense that we love it all. Yeah, you know, it is we, very diverse out there, but yeah, people like, only hear like they, they think, you know, they think Nirvana and all that, which is great. I love Nirvana, but I mean, course. I grew yeah, up out by there and mm-hmm. there's also a large bluegrass following out there. Yes. Even just sticking with sort of, you know, mainstream artists or whatever. Yeah, you're right. People think of Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains. Whom I love. The big four, whom I love too. Yeah. But Jimi Hendrix, right? Jimi fucking Hendrix is from Seattle. Right. Technically mm-hmm. Renton, but south of Seattle. Um, so is Queensryche. Yeah. So is, mm-hmm. so is Hart. And Hart is an amazing. Uh, you know, and that, Nancy Wilson are absolutely Nancy. amazing. Oh my gosh. I, I, don't, I don't think the Northwest really gets its true uh, props sometimes because there are so many great songwriters like Doug Hopkins that went up there. Guns and Roses did their tour up there. Jimi Hendrix, Hart. I no. mean, these are not these these are not slouches. These are like some of the best musicians and songwriters that have ever been, and they're coming out of that area. Now, Doug Hopkins was originally from Arizona. I mean, he went up there and he had a little career up there, and then he came back to Arizona. But it's a musical place. It's highly musical and creative. Right now, one of my favorite bass players is up there, and so I'm just I, name drop who. His yeah. name is Art Edwards. He was the bass player of the Refreshments. Oh, okay. yeah. I mean, he, he's up there, and right. he's not only a player but a, a writer. Well, you, know? you know, yeah. You you mentioned uh, Guns and Roses. You know, that's the other. When you're talking about what people don't tend to know about the Seattle area, is all of the exports that happened in the '80s before the big alt rock boom, mm-hmm. where you had you had Duff McKagan move to LA. He's a Seattle guy. He's yep. You know, he's connected with all the Seattle bands. And before he was the bass player for the Guns N' Roses, he was in 10-Minute Warning and a, a num- m- number of Seattle bands that were really important in that era just before, you know, so-called grunge. And then you also had uh, Nikki Six. Uh, mm-hmm. Molly Crew was an export of Seattle to L.A. You know, so, the, yeah, you're right. The, the Seattle influence goes wide, and not just of the bands who came out of Seattle, but the musicians who joined other bands elsewhere. But their origins are in Seattle. Um, let's talk about the last song, which I'm, you know, all the songs I picked, it was so hard to pick. <laughs> you have a lot of songs. Um, but I picked this one specifically because it doesn't have lyrics. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Nothing More Frightening. I thought that the eyes were pretty good, that at least one of the songs would be an instrumental because I have written a lot of them. Um, I, I don't really know why, except I'm a fan of instrumentals. I'm perfectly happy listening to music that has no 
know, vocals. Um, I know for some people that's, that's just not doable, but I, I love listening to, and I love writing instrumentals. There's something about pure music that I really like. Um, mm-hmm. That one was um, another one that just kind of came all at once. How did I, I pick only songs that came mm-hmm. all at once? I don't know how I did that. I didn't do that on purpose. I swear we didn't talk before. This is a song that has a lot of changes. Um, it yeah, you know, it has, has many different sections to it. And uh, it's also one that has lots of guitars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it has an abundance of guitars. And, He's so happy. That's so uh, I kind of I'm not gonna lie. I sort of picked the song for Brent. Hey, I have questions. Whenever y'all are ready, let me know when you're done talking. <laughs> uh, just that it it, it all kind of came at once. And when I say that, I mean the the song kind of comes to me start to finish um, with with all of its changes and everything. If if it has changes like that, but also that means I know how it's gonna be recorded. You know, sometimes it's a week or thirty days before I'm able to record a song, and sometimes it doesn't get on record for years but whatever the case when i have a song done i know how the drums are going to be i know how the bass is going to be i know what all the guitars are going to be doing if it has vocals i've already decided if it has any harmonies or anything like that i know what the vocal melody is going to be again this one doesn't because it's instrumental but um so when i talk about fully formed i'm talking about the arrangement but i'm also talking about sonically and dynamically how it's going to be recorded go ahead brent all right yeah. <laughs> okay. So ready. So, so I I love guitar instrumentals too. I just mm-hmm. anything with guitar. I just especially when guitar is the highlighted instrument, and it doesn't necessarily have to be electric guitar. It can be bass guitar. It can be mm-hmm. ukulele. You know, sure. stringed stringed instruments just love them for some reason. So intro, cool distortion. What effects were used on this to get this guitar tone? Can you remember what you played Ooh. through to get it? Because it's distinct. It's very distinct. Yeah, yeah. I'm almost positive that that was a mix of um, playing a Fender Strat through, um, you know, the guitars are panned, of course. And I think mm-hmm. one side is a couple of passes of going through a Marshall and the other one is going through a Fender Twin. And I, ah. I, I like the, the balance of those playing together because they have such different sounds, but they blend really well. And I think through the twin, I was, I was using a tube screamer. Okay. And I think through the Marshall, I was either using the, the amp distortion or I was using a plexi uh, pedal uh, that basically acts like a Marshall distortion. So I was going to ask you, see, this is a totally dorky question, but I think I know the answer, but where did you place the microphones when you recorded those, you, I don't think you did them straight on, did you? No, no. Where right. did you put them? Um, like off center. So the other thing is, is the breakdown at two o four is really cool on that song. I can't. I don't know I what part that is. <laughs> He's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know he has ten out. albums. The other I don't part, know what two minutes in, he is. So. I know, I know, it's dorky, but when I hear something cool, I write it down. Um, I appreciate that. The uh, half step riff really added tension so it was kind of like the jaws theme dum 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 oh, yeah. dum dum yeah. that was really cool and i i was like how the hell did i had to actually rewind to figure out how you got back got into that so i found that really interesting because i wasn't expecting you know that half half step riff and you played on it for a little while i mean it's a 4 4 minute 38 second song so you have a lot more canvas to work with but i i was trying to figure out how you got to that you don't have to answer that question because i'm i mean that's just but it was interesting that 
that you were able to insert that in there where you did. And it's shortly after the 204, which is the cool part. No, I, I think I know what part you're talking about now. And uh, I, I really like that part too, uh, because what I like about it is when everything goes halftime, everything comes out and there's that clean guitar that's just doing the single noted version. And then the heavy guitars come in and, and double what the, what the clean tone is doing. I made sure in the mix, and this is one reason why I find recording and mixing as important, if not more so than live performance, even though I love playing live, is that there are things you can do in a mix that is almost impossible to do in real time. And I was able to achieve something I wasn't sure I was going to be able to, which is when the heavy guitars come in and back that single noted clean guitar, mm -hmm. I made sure that the clean guitar stayed higher up in the mix among the heavy guitars. And you don't hear that very often. You don't, you don't hear like a clean guitar sound actually overpowering these heavy, heavy distorted guitars. And I think what that did was it, it created a, an interesting tone in that section. The, the only person i can think of who really did that very often goes back to the 70s with some of the stuff that jimmy page did on some of the mm -hmm. zeppelin records where sometimes the, the clean guitars would actually be louder than the distorted guitars
how are you transitioning? You spoke a little bit about it at the beginning. How are you transitioning this music into a live show? I mean, are you doing 45 minute shows? You talked a little bit about having a show where you had three different bands to support you in it. Is that how you're doing? It? How are you bringing this music to the masses? When I go to, you know, a uh, Masonic block show, what am I gonna? What am I gonna see? Am I gonna experience the ten albums, or am I gonna experience metal? How how are you gonna get all your stuff across? I guess in a live setting. That is always a tricky thing to decide. So, uh, I mean, it might be. Uh, you know, selective cuts from all 10 albums or many of those albums. It might be an all metal show. It might be an all acoustic, you know, ballads and pop songs show. Um, I deliberately do that. My favorite is to be, be able to do a little bit of everything. And um, pre-pandemic, we had uh, really taken a break from doing shows most of the time. And then the irony was that right before the pandemic, we were going to begin to do that so i'm outside of portland by about an hour we were going to play at portland state university um in may or june of 2020 and then of course in march everything changed but that was going to be the beginning of us doing shows again and we did one performance this last summer and that's the only thing we've really done live and because it had been so long um it was kind of three different things it was me playing with two or three guys and then me playing with just me and a drummer um, and then a few songs where it was just me, you know, doing some kind of troubadour style stuff. Um, that tends to be my favorite, but there's so many things at play. There are what what songs do I want to play? Yeah. What do I feel like I owe the audience, depending on if they're likely to be familiar with my catalog or not? People who are familiar with my stuff are going to be more understanding if I want to do an all metal set or an all punk set or an all acoustic set than people who have never heard of me, uh, then I want to show them the variety of the stuff I do. But then I'm also dependent on what, you know, the musicians I work with, who is available. And if not all the people are available that I want to be able to do a show, then that also factors in what song I'm going to play. I mean, there's a song called Id that I wrote, which is one of my favorite songs I've ever written. It has this really bizarre three, four chorus chorus without vocals there there are lyrics in the in the verses but not in what acts as the chorus in the song and it's in a kind of bizarre three four time in a way that you don't tend to hear it i had never been able to perform that song because that's one of the songs that i recorded everything including the drums mm-hmm. and i've had drummers who are much much better drummers than me not be able to learn how to play that song it's just too weird it's too difficult it you can't compare it to other things and I was finally able to perform it this last summer um, at the one performance we did because uh, one of my bandmates was disciplined enough to learn the song. Um, so there's that too. There are songs that I've written that are just hard for people to learn. Mm-hmm. And so I have to be kind of, I have to pick, okay, you know, I have to prioritize what songs am I going to teach to other people too. What do you mean teach? Don't you just tell them, Hey, this song's in the key of A. Let's go. Right, because we're all just doing Chuck Berry songs. <laughs> right. Right. Let us know when you're playing, where you're playing, when you're releasing something new. 
Because really? I will I will push your stuff. You yeah, just got to reach out to me. And I will be happy to to help you any way I can from San Antonio, Texas. Oh, thank you so much. That's And awesome. San Antonio is a metal town. Is that right? Yes. Is, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's like stepping back to the 90s sometimes. Man, I had a good time, guys. That's yeah, me too. Oh, me too. I appreciate it's y'all fantastic. taking time and hanging oh, out. Likewise. So thank y'all for listening this evening. Thank you, James, again for being on the show. Yes, James, you are a badass, dude. I want to write 10 albums. Well, you get started. You got plenty of time left. Okay, maybe not plenty, but you do have some. No, I've got plenty of time left because I'm going to freeze my head like they did on the Golden Girls and then just come the fuck back. No, I'm not. I'm kidding. I don't know. I'm really tired not meds. Make sure you guys click those links below and show James some love. Um, also, please make sure that you are following Sound Pollution. I'm definitely digging all the listening and views we are getting on Spreaker, on Spotify, on iHeartRadio all of a sudden, actually, which is crazy. And uh, our YouTube is going insane, but we need you to follow us. It helps us get subscribers, which will help us uh keep bringing you new independent artists yeah subscribe bills too share 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 sharing is caring did you want to give them your venmo so they can send you money too (laughs) yeah yeah oh also um i know i haven't been on the patreon i'm going to be updating that at the first of the year which will be like two weeks after this is out so uh make sure you go over to sound pollution podcast on our patreon become a patron there's three tiers there also the links below also include uncle brent's music uh and uncle brent's stuff make sure that you are like following and subscribing to him as well yeah because he doesn't have many friends at all and so he's friendless Thank you for listening to Sound Pollution. Remember to get out there, make some fucking noise.